Uh, good evening, everyone. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, uh, fifth book of the New Testament is where we'll start tonight. For those of you who are new or newer to us, it's been a few weeks since I've been here. My name is Brian Howard. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here at Calvary. Uh, and where you've arrived, if you've kind of stepped in new, is we are in the midst uh, of an eight-week series. So an eight Thursday series uh, where we're just talking through what we believe God is calling us to as a church over the next eight years. And so we've called that Calvary 2030, where we're just kind of looking forward into the future and asking God, where do you want to lead our church and what's most important to us as we go forward. And so again, if you are new or newer to our church, you just picked the perfect fall, the perfect time to come into our church to hear what we're all about and what's most important to our church leadership. And here's what our church leadership has just identified in this season. Uh, we were a church here at Calvary that was founded in 1976. So 1976, this church was founded, uh, and it was founded in every way by the generation known as the baby boomer generation. Now, now, baby boomers here, we talked about this. We love baby boomers. We care for baby boomers. We celebrate them because baby boomers built this church, okay? They invested, they prayed, they gave, they built this thing up. So anything you've ever been blessed by in this church was from baby boomers. Uh, and yet here's the thing we want to identify as a church leadership. When Calvary was founded in 1976, the Conejo Valley, we went back and looked at the data, the demographic data on the Conejo Valley that we live in here was that the average age of the person who lived in our valley was 26 years old, 26 years old. Now, if you look around today, you will recognize that it is not 26 years old. So here's what happened. As this church grew up, the community grew around it and the community aged just as our church aged. And here's what happens to far too many churches. Far too many churches like ours that founded in 1976 in just a couple of years will be 50 years old. They grow up with the community and then eventually they go old and gray and then they disappear. And I just hate to say this, but this is exactly what happens to far too many churches. They reach a generation and as that generation grows up, they never change their ways. They never change their approach. They never change the way they talk. And so what happens is the church ages out and then it moves on to something new. And as a leadership here, we just want to recognize and be grateful for a generation that built this church, that gave and prayed and ministered so that this place could actually exist. And at the same time, we just believe we have a call of God on our church and on our lives to be faithful until Jesus brings us home. Like that's the call of God on our church. And so what we want to do is we want to be a people that honors and celebrates the generations that came before and yet prepares ourselves for the generations that come next. And so here's what we believe one of the core pieces of this Calvary 2030 vision, one of the core pieces that we're going to work on and invest in and be about as a church in the years to come. We believe that by the year 2030, we believe that by the year 2030, we must decisively empower our next generation to reach the world for Jesus. That's what we must do. Like we must be a church that is grateful for the people who came before, that learns from their wisdom, that celebrates their accomplishments, that sees the faithfulness of God, and yet pivots in such a way that we are able to reach the next generation for Christ, that we are able to decisively empower the next generation. And I want to be abundantly clear who I'm talking about. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. I want you to know that the resources and energy and leadership and passion of this church is going to be about raising up your generation to reach the world for Jesus, to be grateful and thankful and praise God for the leaders who came before us, but to step into this next generation with a passion and a confidence that you are the people that God has raised up to be the next leaders in God's church. So tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about what that means for your life 
because I could talk about a bunch of programs we're going to do, a bunch of things we're going to build. There's going to be things we build and programs we launch and amazing things that go on here at this church. And that is awesome. And you can be a part of some of those. But here's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to answer a simple question, and it's this one. How can your life, your life, have a generational kind of impact? How can you live the kind of life that actually matters long after you're dead? Because I don't know about you. I just don't want to just like get through life, like clock the punch in, punch out, like pay my bills, just try to get through life, have a few good times, die and have my life not matter. Like I want to live the kind of life, and I don't know if you want the same thing, where God uses you for something spectacular in your time. And, and tonight, I want to try to answer this question, how do you live a life that has a generational kind of impact? That 30 years from now, and 50 years from now, and 100 years from now, the life you have lived actually impacts generations to come. See, our church is calling us into something. And, and right now, I just want to speak to this room. We are being called into something where our job is not just to show up on Thursday nights and enjoy young adults. Our job is to be raised up to be the leaders of the church as we go forward, that our generation would step into the mantle that God has called us toward. And tonight, I want to try to answer this question for anyone in this room who wants their life to matter. How do you live a life of consequence? How do you live a life of generational impact? So again, Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen. We'll start in verse 16. It's the story of the first church, the first century church. Here's what it says. It says, once when we, now, now hold on, the we here is being described in the, what would you call this, the, the first person plural, right? We, this is Paul and Silas, we're going to the place of prayer. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So here's what happens. They are just walking along their way, and there it says they're going to the place of prayer, like they're going to church. And they're the way the church, they encounter this woman, and you'll notice a few things about this woman. The first is that she is enslaved. She does not own her body or her life or her future. She is enslaved by someone. And at the same time, this individual who is enslaved has a spiritual problem, right? She is possessed by some sort of spirit, some kind of demon that gives her the power to read the future. And yet she is being used and abused for that, for the fortune of her masters. Uh, like, I want you to recognize immediately that this story happens with the people. They're just going to church. They're just going off to pray. And they see a problem it is a societal problem of slavery. It is a spiritual problem of possession. They see this woman. They identify a problem. And this is where I want to begin tonight with a problem that they identify. And you and I can do the same because here's what I want you to know. This is so simple, right? That problems are a universal feature of the human experience. Like universal. Like there has never been a day or a time or an age where problems didn't exist. If somehow in your mind you think the world used to be wonderful, but now in the age of the internet it's gotten terrible, you don't know history. And if you think the opposite, like the world used to be terrible, but now it's perfect, you don't know the present. Like our world has always had problems. It will always have problems. There will be corruption and there will be greed and there will be hatred and there will be racism and there will be immorality and wickedness. That is a universal part of the human experience. And here's what I want you to know if you want to have a life of generational impact, a life of consequence, a life that matters long after you're dead. Your capacity to identify problems in this world does not make your life special. It doesn't. And our generation has fallen into this trap where we think if we repost something on our Instagram story, our work is done here. And that is not it. Like you looking out in the world and going, that's racist, that's a problem, that's bad, that's wicked, that's immoral, that's against God's law. You identifying problems doesn't make you special. It doesn't make me special. It's so easy to look around this world and be like, things are broken. 
congratulations, you have come to the conclusion that literally every human ever has come to. But hear me on this. Your willingness to offer imperfect solutions to problems does make your life special. It does make your life meaningful. Imperfect solutions. And why do I say imperfect solutions to the problems of this world? Because that's the only kind of solution we can offer. It's the solution where we see a problem in this world. We see an issue. We see an injustice. And we step into it. And are we going to do it perfectly? No. But here's my fear for so many of us. That we are afraid to offer solutions to problems. We're afraid of doing something in this world. Because the minute you do something, you'll be criticized for it. And here's what I want you to know. The only type of people who have made a difference in this world are imperfect people who have thrown themselves at a singular kind of problem. Those are the people who make a generational impact. Those are the people who make a difference. Uh, Listen, the people who just kind of sit on the sidelines and chirp about everything that's wrong, they tell you, oh, that's a problem. And those people who are trying to fix the problem, they're a problem. And those people are a problem. The people who are just critics, they don't actually change anything in this world. They don't actually make a generational kind of impact. Listen, some of you have heard me say this before. I'll say it again, that it is easy to critique, but it's hard to construct. It, It is easy to break, but it is hard to build. And it is easy to problematize, but it is hard to produce. You know how easy it is to critique and break things and problematize? Well, that's a problem, and I want to critique that, and I've got a problem. That's easy. That's child's play. You want to do something meaningful and passionate with your life? Construct something. Build something. Produce something. Easiest thing in the world is to criticize people out there. The hardest thing in the world is to do something yourself. Super easy to criticize parents. You know what's hard? Parenting. Super easy to criticize the education system. You know what's hard? Teaching. Super easy to criticize the church. You know what's hard? Come be a small group leader for us. It is easy to criticize. It is hard to produce. And what I want for us is to be the type of people who say that I am going to step into the problems of this world and offer an imperfect solution, even if I get criticized because it's worth it. There was a preacher named D.L. Moody who was a famous preacher and evangelist. And he was preaching a sermon and calling for people to respond to the gospel. And he was preaching this evangelistic, passionate sermon. And after the sermon, some people confronted him. And they came up to him and said, we don't like the way you do evangelism. It's too emotional and it's too manipulative. And we don't like what you're doing with evangelism. And this great preacher, D.L. Moody, responds, I'm so sorry. Um, I would just be so open to it. Like, how do you do evangelism? Because maybe I can learn from you. And they said, oh, well, we don't. And then he says these famous words. This is so good. He says, I like my way of doing things better than your way of not doing them. (laughs) And and I found myself in this life having to do this. Like when people criticize how our church operates, I'm like, awesome. Like, how do you do it? Oh, you don't? Oh, you don't do it. So like, I like our way of doing it better than your, your young adult ministry. It's just wrong, all wrong. Like, cool. Like, join us. Like, let's figure it out. But then I've had to actually check my own heart. Because sometimes I see the way other people are doing things to solve problems in the world. I'm like, I don't like how she talks about that. Well, I don't like how he advocates for those people. Well, I don't like how he does this. And here's what I have to do. I have to recognize that if I'm not actually doing anything, I don't have a lot of ground to stand on. So what do I want to be? I don't want to be just an identifier of problems in the world. That's child's play. You want to step up and do something meaningful that'll last beyond your lifetime? Step into the arena and do something about it. That's where God moves in power. It goes on, it says in verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting. So get this, like they're walking around, they're doing ministry. And this woman who is possessed by a demon, she is a slave. She's shouting out, these men are servants of the most high God. And they are telling you the way to be saved, which is like a true thing. And and yet here's what the story says. She kept this up for many days. So like you can say a true thing, but you can be annoying after a while. That's not like part of the sermon. I just want you to know. You can be true, but also annoying. And that's true of me. All right. It says this. 
that finally Paul became so annoyed. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture. Paul became so annoyed that he turned around in the spirit. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Like, I love this story. Paul's just rolling and it says after a few days. It doesn't say like she shouted out a few times and Paul was like, stop. This is like days. Imagine another human being shouting behind you for days. And after a while, you just scream out, I can't take it anymore. Like, this is what happens. You can't take it anymore, and eventually you just snap. It's like me with my children. So here's what you need to know about children's toys. They're the absolute worst, okay? Like, my, little, my daughter has this little guitar, and it's like a Minnie Mouse guitar. And when you hit it, it plays like little, it's not like, it, there's no strings. They're just buttons, and it makes noise, and it's adorable, and it's cute until it's not. And, and, and so... And so here's what happened the other night. Like it happened to be in our bedroom. And like for some reason in the middle of the night, this phantom demon thing just starts shouting in the middle of the night, right? And, and, and there's like, I can handle it until I can't. Like I can handle it until there's a moment where I'm like, I can't take it anymore. I remove the batteries and say, oops, it broke. Like that's what I do. I can't take it anymore. And here's my question for you. What is that one thing in the world that you just cannot handle anymore? that you will not sit by anymore and watch something like that happen. See, for Paul, it was this woman who just finally, he goes, I'm tired of her spiritual issue. I'm tired of this societal issue. I'm gonna turn around. I'm gonna rebuke it. I'm gonna do something about it. I can't take it anymore. And if you want to have a generational impact, you have to have this moment where you can't take something anymore. I don't know what that something is for you, but there's something in this world that stirs your heart where you just, I can't take it anymore. Like biblically, let me show you some examples. For Moses, it was freeing his people from slavery. For David, it was defeating the Philistines. For Solomon, it was building a proper temple. For Elijah, it was rescuing his people from idolatry. For Esther, it was saving her people from destruction. Like at some point they stood up and just said, that's the issue. That is the singular thing I am going to throw my life at. For Luke, it was helping people understand the Jesus story. For Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, it was funding Jesus' ministry. Do you know there are women who funded Jesus and his disciples out of their own wealth? The whole Jesus story happened because they just went, this needs to happen. And all of our money's going into this. For Stephen, it was serving hungry people food. For Paul, it was planting churches in unreached places. It continues in church history. For John Wycliffe, it was translating the Bible into English. For William Wilberforce, it was ending the Atlantic slave trade. For Hudson Taylor, it was building the church in China. For Mother Teresa, it was serving the poor in Calcutta. For Martin Luther King Jr., it was ending segregation. For Billy Graham, it was preaching the gospel to the unsaved. What's my point? My point is this, that God has not asked you to solve everything. He has not asked you to solve everything. God has asked you to do something. And my question for you is this, what's the one thing in this world you just can't get out of your mind? What's the one issue, injustice, or problem in this world that you just feel like you need to spend the rest of your life addressing this thing? I don't know what that thing is, but I know that the people who make generational kinds of impact aren't the people who try to solve all of the world's problems, who try to make everything better. If your goal in life is like, I'll just bring about world peace and harmony in every single area, you're probably not gonna make much of an impact. You know the people who make an impact? It's the people who say, you know what? There are middle schoolers who have never heard, I'm proud of you, so I'm gonna join our middle school ministry and make sure everyone does. Those are the people who change generations. Those are the people who change lives. For some of you, it's the fact that there are kids who go to bed hungry at night. So you're gonna throw your life into making sure kids get food, either by handing it to them yourself or by earning so much money that you eradicate poverty in an area. Like there's just a burden and a passion. Maybe it's a place like Calcutta. Maybe it's a place like downtown Los Angeles. Maybe it's a place like the Caneo Valley. Wherever that is, you just focus and you say, I'm going to lay myself into this one thing 
This one thing that stirs my heart so much, I just can't let go of it. See, sometimes we think in order to make a generational impact, we have to be big and broad and impact everyone all at once. But I think the opposite is actually true. I think God moves in power when we focus and say, this is the one thing in this world I just cannot handle anymore. I can't take it anymore. Uh, A pastor and author, Andy Stanley, says it this way. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one person, one individual, one ministry, one town, one city, one passion that you have. Uh, I want to call you not to solve all of the world's problems. You can't do it. You're not big enough and you're not God. But you can step into something where God uses you in power. For Paul and Silas, they turn around and finally Paul snaps. He can't handle it anymore, what's going on with this woman. And he calls the demon out of her. He says, I command you to come out. And in that moment, the spirit left her. In verse 19, it says this, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are overthrowing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined the attack on Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped down and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into the stocks. Like, do you notice what happens? They cast the demon out of this woman and suddenly they can't make money off this woman. Like this woman was not a human being, a person with dignity and value, uh, worthy of respect. This individual is just a moneymaker for them. And so rather than caring about this woman at all, they go after the liberators. They go after Paul and Silas. What does it say? They're dragged into court. They're lied about publicly. They're targeted by a mob. They're humiliated. They are physically beaten and they are thrown into prison. And, and, and look, I, I'm just so glad this is part of this story because I just need us to have like a clear eyes on this. If you want to have a generational in kind of impact, I need you to know that a life of generational impact will cost you. It will cost you. There's no way you impact the world in a meaningful kind of way and you get out of it without cost. A life of generational impact will cost you. It's always going to cost you something. You're always going to suffer. You're always going to have to give more. Number one, you will be exhausted. Like if you want to impact the world, you don't get to be lazy. You don't just get to lean back and let life happen to you. You lean into it. And it doesn't mean you never Sabbath or rest. Those are good, healthy, right things. But it means that you are willing to be wrung out for the sake of the gospel. And if your general philosophy of life is, I just want to be as comfortable as possible, your life might be comfortable. It will never make a generational impact. You will be exhausted. Number two, you will be misunderstood. Like if you want to serve in such a way that actually makes an impact on the world, there are going to be people who misunderstand you. You're going to serve with our high school ministry and someone's going to be like, that's just because you never got past high school. And you're like, no, 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 no. I want to actually care about teenagers and help them and move on. Or you're going to serve with our special abilities ministry and someone's going to mock you or belittle you for wasting your time on that. Someone's not going to understand if you want to make a generational kind of impact, you're just going to be misunderstood. Listen, if you want to make a generational kind of impact, you're going to be criticized. You will be criticized. If you want to live a life where you avoid criticism, you can do that. You just won't make an impact. Like the only way for you to not be criticized is to do nothing, say nothing, believe nothing, stand for nothing. And if that's the kind of life you want to live, fine. It's just not a Jesus following kind of life. We want to live the kind of life where we open ourselves to criticism. Maybe you start an organization or you give money away or you advocate for someone or something that no one else seems to care about. You will be criticized and listen, you will be judged. 
There are going to be people who don't want anything to do with you. You may lose friendships. You may lose opportunities. You may lose money. There may be people who don't want to associate with you because of how you stand for someone or something. And if you want to live a life of generational impact, you've got to get over your fear of other human beings and their opinions of you because you know what your God says about you. And then listen, you will be slandered. Like, like if you want to live a life where you actually make a difference, there will be people who say things just like the apostles here. You know what they say about them? It says they're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They didn't advocate anything here. All they did was cast a demon out of a woman. And yet they're getting lied about. They're being slandered. Why? Because they're making a difference. And everyone who stands up to make a difference in this world will ultimately be slandered. There, there will be things said about you that will be completely untrue and you just have to take it because you know what your God says about you. Like, I can take the slander. I can take people saying things about me because one day I will not answer to them. I will stand before my creator and the judge of the universe. That's what we want to do. And then finally, I just want to say this. If you want to make a difference, your life will be at risk. It will be. And listen, that doesn't mean like today, every day, your life is at risk. I don't want to ever pretend like the church in America is facing persecution like our brothers and sisters in places where they're actually being slaughtered for the gospel. And yet what I do want to say is that the further you press in, the more risk you put yourself at. And if you want to live a life that is safe and easy, you can do that. But you can't also do that and make a generational kind of impact. If you want your life to matter, you have to be willing to risk. You have to be willing to lose. You have to be willing to say, you know what? Whatever happens, it's worth it. And here's why it's worth it. Not out of some kind of like macho, like I can take it, bring it on, it's great. That's not what the Bible calls you toward. The Bible doesn't call you to be like, I don't care about people's opinions. They can say all sorts of horrible things. They can threaten my family. You're not supposed to be like, oh, that's cool. What you're supposed to do is recognize that something is happening the moment you are criticized. So here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you. You are blessed. When? When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We were singing earlier that your kingdom is backwards. You remember that line? It flows in reverse. What God calls a blessing, this world calls a curse. That's this right here. You are blessed when people mock you, belittle you, slander you, lie about you, oppose you because of Jesus. And then what does it say? Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know the reason if you're trying to make a generational impact, you can handle the slander and the lies and the meanness and the opposition and everything that comes against you. It's not just because you're tough and strong and you don't care. It's because there's a promise that's held out for you. That when people lie about you, slander you, misunderstand you, judge you, criticize you, it doesn't just say deal with it. It says that there's actually something in it for you because great is your reward in heaven. Do you know that we're promised heaven, but then we're also promised rewards in heaven? And I don't actually fully know what that means. I know you're not used to pastors saying that, but like I don't actually fully know what that means because the Bible doesn't actually fully tell us what that means. The Bible says there are going to be rewards in heaven. Your question is like, uh, what kind of rewards are we talking about here? Um, are we talking about like real rewards or are we talking about, remember when you went to like Chuck E. Cheese as a kid and you got all the tickets and then you got like some flimsy thing. You're like, this isn't worth it. Like, is it that? What kind of rewards? And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't answer the question. The Bible doesn't say, well, when you get to heaven, you get like a beanbag chair and you get a car. Like, it doesn't say that. And, and yet it promises rewards. And here's the way I like to think about it. So when I was growing up, um, I remember in middle school, uh, a friend of mine, uh, her, his mom was like a pastry chef. And so she was like a pro. And like anytime she would bake something, it would be amazing. So it was around Christmas time. Uh, and what he told me is, hey, after school today, my mom's going to have a plate of cookies for you and your family. 
And when she promised a plate of cookies to me and my family, I didn't ask myself, well, what kind of cookies are we talking about here? I didn't ask myself, well, how many eggs did she use or what kind of flour did she put in there? I didn't ask those kinds of questions because I knew if she was making the cookies, it was going to be good. And if she was promising something good, she was going to deliver. And I need you to know that your heavenly father and your Jesus would not promise you reward unless it would be entirely worth it. That a hundred billion years from now, you will be with God in glory and that reward will seem far greater than any criticism you got from anyone online. Like, that's what we want. We want to be the type of people who are willing to make an impact in such a way that we can be criticized. And we know that there is a great reward for us in heaven. It goes on this way in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And you're like, hold on. Go back to the last page. Uh, they're thrown in prison and fasten their feet into the stock. So they're in prison. They're in the inner cell of prison. Their feet are fastened. And you got to imagine, like you and me, we'd be like, oh, this is the worst. And what are they doing instead? It says they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. And if you ever feel like you are being persecuted for your faith and your first impulse is to whine and complain, go reread this passage. Our first impulse should be to worship. Our first impulse should be to pray because whatever is happening to us, God is seated high on the throne of heaven. He is exalted. He is sovereign. There is nothing that can happen against you that is not filtered through his hand. And so they're singing and praying, praying praises to God, hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. The other prisoners were like, what is going on over there? And it says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And this is such a powerful story because it's the middle of the night and they're in prison and things are not looking good for them at all. And rather than whining and complaining about what's happening to them, they sing hymns to God. They're praying to God. They're trusting him and worshiping him. And in the midst of that, God moves in power. And here's what I want you to know. This is a theme all throughout the scripture. And it's this, that God does his best work when his people are at work. But like God's miracles in the Bible, if you, if you know your Bible well, here's what you'll see. Um, there are miracles all throughout the Bibles. All Bibles, one Bible. Um, all throughout the Bible, there are miracles. And yet here's the crazy thing. The miracles don't happen by God just snapping his finger and making it happen to people who are doing nothing. Like if you look through the scripture, what you will see is miracle after miracle where God moves in power to people who are actually doing something. Like if you know the story of Jericho, God doesn't just say, I'll knock down the walls. What does he say? March around a couple days. Well, why did he make him do that? Because God does his best work when his people are at work. The wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, like that's a fun party trick. But notice he didn't just do it. He didn't just say, boom, wine bottles. He had them fill up these giant jars worth of water. The 5,000 people who were fed, if you know the stories in the gospel, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. How does he do it? By snapping his fingers? No. He's like, uh, who's got a lunchbox? Okay, you got some fish and loaves? And he multiplies them. Why? God loves to take our small acts of obedience and multiply them into something spectacular. This is how our God moves. Look, every time you see a miracle in the Bible, just look, what did God ask his people to do first? God splits the Red Sea, but you know what he asked them to do first? Take that step into the water. And that's what you're called to do. You are called to step out into something. You are called to serve in a small but important way. And through that, God will move in power. I'll put it a different way. When we are doing what we are called to do, God does what only he can do. When you are praying, when you're just on your face praying, you may feel like that is the smallest thing in the world. And God says, I will multiply that in ways you would never imagine. Yeah. Well, when you are serving, like some of you serve in like our elementary ministry, and you're like with fourth graders all the time. You're like, what difference am I making with fourth graders? The answer is God takes your feeble, small efforts and explodes it in the life of a young fourth grader. 
Like that's what God does. He takes your little prayers, your little invites, your little ways you share the gospel, your little ways you love and serve the poor, your little ways you do that, and he multiplies it in amazing ways. This is when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God is like this tiny little mustard seed planted in the ground, and yet it explodes in size. That's what God does with our small, tiny, little efforts. Well, like some of you tonight are going like, this is great, Brian, but what you're talking about is small little things. How is that going to make a generational impact? And I want you to know that's the only way we make generational impact. By doing small little things in faithfulness to the Lord. I'm not asking you to change the world. I'm not asking you to solve every problem. I'm not asking you to bring world peace and harmony. I'm asking you to be faithful in the small things so God can show himself powerful in the big things. Verse 27, the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. This was the rule for the, the, the Romans here, the authorities. If the prisoner escapes, you better kill yourself because we're going to kill you anyway. Here's what it says. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to them and all that was in his house. This jailer is going to ask a question, what do I need to do to be saved? And, and here's what I want you to know, that the central message of the Christian faith is not that you do a bunch of good things to earn God's love. It is the exact opposite. It is that God loves you. You have not earned it. You have not deserved it. Like if you're here tonight, and you're not even sure what to do with God. Here's what I want you to know about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible loves you right now, right as you are. He is for you. He is with you. He is on your side. He delights in you. He sent his son Jesus into this world that you might be rescued and redeemed. That's the story of the gospel. Like the story of Jesus, the central point of the Christian faith is this. He asks, what must I do to be saved? And notice they don't respond, well, what you got to do is you got to clean up your life and go to church and stop doing bad things and, and be a little bit of a better person, then God will love you. What does he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? It just means that you trust that God has sent his son into the world to rescue sinners like you. That's how we're saved. That's how we're rescued. And you're like, that's too simple. That's exactly the point. The exact point is that, and here's what I want you to know. You can do all sorts of things to create some kind of generational impact. But if you don't know the God of every generation, if you don't know the God of generation after generation, if you don't know him and love him and have been forgiven for your sins, you can do all sorts of wonderful things in this world. But God is going to ultimately rescue and redeem those who believe in him. If you want to make a generational kind of impact, it might even begin tonight. I just want to urge you, if you're here, to call in the name of the Lord tonight. Just right where you sit, call out to God and say, God, I give all I know of me, every part of my soul, every part of my heart to all I know of you. And God, I don't have all the answers, but I want to have a relationship with you. I want to invite you to do that where you sit tonight before you leave. If we can be of service to you, if we can help you, I'll be around afterwards. There'll be plenty of people around you can talk to. We want tonight to be the night where you know how you can be saved by believing and calling in the same God. In verse 33, it says this. It says, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized, which is like a fascinating part of the story. So there's this jailer and he's jailed them all up. And then the earthquake comes, they all release. And Paul's like, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. We're gonna save your life by not running away. We're gonna be here. And he's so moved by that act of love that he comes to believe in Jesus. And then what does it say? His entire household was baptized. His wife and his children come to Jesus. This is remarkable. 
Like this is an amazing thing that happens here. Paul and Silas lead this one guy to the Lord. This one guy leads his wife and then his children to the Lord. And it says that very night they were baptized. Like that very night they identified with Jesus. And and, and here's what's remarkable about this story. What's remarkable about this story is the impact they had on one man and that one man had on his family that he had on his children. And and, and for some of you, this is just going to sound like wildly out of left field during this sermon. But here's what I want you to know that the biggest generational impact most people will have is through their children, through their children. Uh, like I, I had the opportunity for seven years to be the high school pastor here at this church. I'm looking at it. Some of you were part of the high school ministry when I was in there. And uh, thousands, like thousands upon thousands of high school students came through that ministry. And I had a wide impact there in my ministry there. But the deepest impact I will have, the greatest impact I will have on the next generation, like when I am dead, the greatest impact I will have is through three individuals named Grace, Noah, and Hope, my three children. I will impact them, and for better or worse, the way I impact them will shape the generations that come after me long after I am dead. The deepest and greatest impact I will have is through my children. And for most people listening tonight in this room or online, the same is true with you. Now, here's what I want to recognize. Some of you wish you were married and have children, and that's just not been in the cards for you yet. I want to recognize that for others of you, you may feel a call to celibacy, a call to singleness, where you're not going to get married and have children, and that's okay. Jesus didn't have children. Paul, here in this story, did not get married and did not have children. I want us to understand that that's not for everyone. And then I also just want to understand, and maybe this is a part of some of your stories, or maybe it'll be part of your story someday, that there are some people who want to have children desperately. They just can't. And I have dear friends who have walked that journey. In the scriptures, we see people who walk that journey. So my point isn't to say the only way to impact the next generation is to have babies and raise them up. But I do want to point to that. I want to point to that as something the scriptures are going to identify as a way you profoundly and deeply impact the next generation. You can have a wide impact on a lot of people, but I can have a deep impact on my children. You know why that's true? Because I had breakfast with them this morning. I didn't have breakfast with any of you people, but I had breakfast with them. We had waffles and yogurt, and it was great. Like every morning, every day, over and over, I'm impacting them. And I want us to understand tonight how different this is than what our culture loves to say about marriage and parenting. Like our culture says this, that marriage is a trap, children are a burden, so stay single and live your life. And again, if God has called you to celibacy, if he's called you to singleness, and that's what God has put on your life, praise God, go pursue that. But if you are in that spot where you're like, I kind of want to get married, but everyone says marriage is a trap. Here's what I want you to know, that this is a lie. This is not true. You can be single and fully satisfied in Jesus. You are complete as you are. You don't need someone else. And yet here's what I want you to know that the Bible says. The Bible says that marriage is beautiful, children are a blessing, and that you raise children and they will shape the future. That's what the scriptures call us toward. What the scriptures call us toward is to understand that marriage is beautiful, children are a blessing, and when we raise children, they shape the future. Now, here's the question you might be asking. Brian, this is all well and good. Why are you talking to the large single people, a group of single people here at Calvary? Anyone in this room single? Anyone? Ah, all around the room. What? Like, why are you talking to me? I'm not married. I don't have babies. Why are you talking to me about this? Go talk to other people about this. Go talk to my parents about it, right? Like, that's what you want to say. Yeah, this is great, Brian, but why is this for me? And here's why this is for you. Because when, when you date people and, and when you start to pursue someone or when you start to get into a relationship, there's a lot of questions we like to ask. And a lot of times the question is like, well, is she fun or is he cute? Or do we like the same TV shows? And those are like fine questions to a- ask. 
And like there are wonderful questions that you can ask on a first date, and I'm not gonna recommend this one on a first date, but here's a question I want you eventually asking as you pursue a man or a woman in a relationship, it's this one. Would I be excited to raise children with this person? Because that's a different kind of question. When you're just asking, is she fun or is he cute or do we like the same kind of shows? That's a certain kind of question. But then there's this deeper kind of question where it says, this individual and I, if we go the distance and we get married and God gives us children, am I excited to raise children with him or am I terrified of how he'll act around them? Am I just nervous about what she'll be like? That reframes the relationship because suddenly the guy that's so boring suddenly looks steady as a dad, right? Because suddenly the woman who's so nervous actually looks responsible as a mom. Uh, like it changes it. And, and listen, I'm not asking you to like meet someone and be like, so like kids, what? Like, no, don't do that, right? But I am asking you, if you've been dating someone for some time, to look at them and ask the question, okay, could I raise children with this person? Would I be excited about that? Like I actually want you to reframe the way you think about marriage and parenting, not just to like someday I'll get married to my prince or and we'll have 3.4 children, not 3.4, maybe 1.4. I don't know what the number is, but like we'll have a beautiful, like there's this whole like vision you have of your life and that vision basically centers around I will have a wife or a husband and children and they will fulfill all of my needs and wants and desires. And here's what I want you to know. That's just a path to misery. Your spouse will not fulfill all of your desires. Only God can do that. Your children will be a beautiful blessing in your life. But when I look to my five-year-old or my two-year-old to fulfill all my desires, it does not work, right? And like what I want for you is to date in such a way that you go, this is not about me fulfilling my desires. Listen, generational impact comes when family is no longer about my fulfillment. It's no longer about me fulfilling my desires. It is about me raising up children so that I might bless the next generation. You don't think about this with kids when you're young because we're young and we think we're gonna be here forever. But here's the crazy thing, Lord willing, unless something horrific happens beyond anything I want to imagine, there will come a day where I die and my children are still here, impacting and shaping this world. And for all of us, as we look forward into a future of family and maybe marriage and children, you just have a vision for that in your future. Rather than just saying, how can this fulfill me and my desires and my wants and my emotions and my story? What if you reframed it to, how can I step into a covenant relationship with a man or a woman who is willing to impact the next generation through our children? That changes things. And that's what I want to call you toward. Verse 34 ends this way. This is how the story wraps up. It says, the jailer brought him into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe God. He came to believe in God, him and his whole household. Like the story ends with a meal and a celebration. The story ends with, man, this man's just thrilled. When it says he's filled with joy, sometimes we just like read that in Bible speak, we're like, he smiled. Like, no, he's like, yes, this is awesome. He knows God and his wife knows God and his children know God, his whole household knows God. And why did that happen? It happened because Paul and Silas were walking through a city and they found this one woman and this woman had a societal problem of slavery and a spiritual problem of possession and it bothered them so deeply that they did something about it. And because of that, they were thrown in prison and instead of whining and complaining about the circumstances of their life and their generation, instead they impacted one person called the jailer. The jailer, whose name never even gets mentioned, goes home and tells his wife and his children about Jesus and their whole entire family tree is changed. Why? Because one person impacted another. That's how it happens generations get impacted when one person impacts another. Uh, I started the sermon off with this question. It was this one. How can your life have a generational kind of impact? And as we've talked tonight, I hope you've thought about, okay, what do I care about? What's God called me toward? How can I step into it? Even if I'm criticized, even if I'm hated, but what's the answer to the question? The answer to the question is by impacting one life at a time. 
one life at a time. That's how we have a generational kind of impact. And so my call for you tonight, like my practical next step for you, isn't to try to solve the world's problems. It's to say, how can I focus my energy and my effort on making a difference in the lives of individuals? I want to give you a few next steps tonight as we close. Uh, Next steps toward a life of generational impact. We'll just be real practical. Number one, um, I want to call you to serve with the ministry of our church. Um, When I say a ministry of our church, I'm going to get really specific. We have an early childhood ministry. That's the little babies. I have three children in there. It's zero to four. It's adorable. Serve with early childhood on Sundays. No, come hold babies and pray over them. It'll change their whole life. Come serve them. Come teach my daughter her first Bible stories. Come do that in her early childhood. Come serve in our elementary, K through five. Come teach individuals who are in elementary school how to read the Bible and know the Bible and know the God who loves them and cares for them. Perhaps be the first adult in their life who's ever looked at them and said, you matter. Come serve in our middle school ministry right here in this room. Come serve and help squirrely 11 through 13 year olds. That age of life that so many of you are like, hallelujah, I shall never return. But you can step back and return. And you know why you don't want to return? Because during that time, you weren't sure you mattered at all. And you can step in and tell them they do. Like, that's what you get to do. Come serve with our high school ministry where where people are making decisions about their life and decisions about their future, where they're thinking about college and what comes next, where they're stepping into leadership roles in their church and in their school. Come impact their lives. Come serve in our special abilities ministry. Our special abilities ministry ministers to people with disabilities. You can help a child with a disability to know that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that they are not a mistake. They are not an error. They are precious in God's sight. Serve with the ministry in our church. How do you do that? As you walked in tonight, you saw all kinds of tables. And I just want to urge you on your way out tonight, um, I want you um, to stop by one of those tables. Just put your name down. Give your information. You don't have to commit to everything for all of time. You just say, hey, I'm interested. I want to be in. Some of you bug out of here real quick, and that's fine if you need to leave. But I just want to urge you, if you're not serving anywhere, if you're not using your gifts and abilities and passions, serve with the ministry of our church. That's the first one. Number two, serve with the ministry partner of our church. So we have ministries in our church, and then we have these ministry partners in town, ministries that work with foster children or ministries that work with poverty, ministries that work with all kinds of things. Uh, but tonight we have a ministry partner here that um, is just near and dear to my own heart. Um, that ministry partner is called Hume Lake Christian Camps. Um, and so we got a rep from Hume Lake. Could you just wave your hand? Uh, stand up right over there. Thank you. Um, and here's what I want you to do. Um, uh, when I was in college, uh, all four years, so before each year of college, over the summers, I gave my entire summer to serve on a Christian ministry camp. Um, and it wasn't Hume Lake, it was a different camp. Um, and yet I just found myself so grateful for the ways that shaped me and changed me. Um, and the one thing we all just have to get over is the idea that it's your summer break because your life was bought with a price. It was ransom. It's not yours, it's God's. And the question this summer isn't what do I do with my summer? It's how do I honor God with the life he's given me? And I want to ask you and call you into ministry at camp. Now, listen, it might not work for you and I might be your thing, but I want to urge you, if you're just kind of looking at summer of 23 going like, what do I do? What's my life about? There might be nothing more shaping and impacting to your life than signing up to interview with Hume to be a part of their team to serve this summer as thousands of students roll through camp. I've seen life change happen at camp. You will too. How do you serve? How do you make a generational kind of impact? It might just be you signing up to serve, to be on staff with Hume Lake this summer and be a part of that. I urge you to go talk at the Hume Lake table after uh, with a ministry partner of our church. It might just change your life. Number three, uh, reevaluate your posture toward marriage and parenting. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is like three of you. 
But maybe you've actually kind of been thinking about marriage primarily as the thing to fulfill the story you've always had in your mind. You've not really thought about marriage. You've thought about your wedding day and all the designs and frills and all the different, with the dresses. Sorry, am I getting too personal? But like, like you've thought about all that kind of stuff, but you've not actually thought like, I'm going to go up and I'm going to raise a child with this person. We're going to impact the next generation. Maybe you just need to reframe a little bit because maybe, and I'll meddle in your life here, maybe there's someone in front of you who would actually be a wonderful partner and a wonderful parent, but you've been ignoring them because you're letting your idea of a good story get in the way of God's story for your life. I'll stop. Um, so, uh, sorry, I just, I do that sometimes. All right. Next one, reevaluate your education and career. Uh, for some of you, you've gotten into an education and career because you think the primary job in your life is to make money and be comfortable. And that might be what God calls you to do, to make a ton of money so you can fund, like these women did, Jesus's ministry. And yet for some of you, um, God's calling you into something different. And I just want to call you to reassess. I don't, have, I don't know what God's calling you into, but I just know as you seek his face, you'll know his will. And so you may have to reevaluate, okay, I want to make a difference in this world. So maybe me just going into the career that makes the most money possible will actually suck my soul dry. I'll gain the world, but I'll lose my soul. Second to last one, give regularly to the ministry of this or any church. Uh, I've said this before. I'll say this again. I believe you are called by God Almighty to give generously, regularly, and cheerfully, financially to a church. And if this church is the obstacle of you and giving, I want to urge you to find another church to give to. I am not here to get your money. I'm not calling you to give. I don't believe because we need your money. I believe you need to be a person who is generous and giving regularly, cheerfully, and generously to a church. I want you to either find this church, find a way to give. You can give online. There's a little kiosk back there. There's a million ways to give. I want you to give regularly to a church. You make a difference through your giving. And then finally, can I invite you? Our band will make their way up to bring someone to church this fall. Bring someone. Don't just invite someone. Just be like, hey, you're getting in the car with me. They're like, where are we going? I'm like, dinner, but we're going to stop by church first, right? Like, that's what you do. Don't lie, okay? But, 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 but like, invite them, bring them, tell them they're coming with you. Why? Because we want to invite people into what God is doing. Like, the goal is not just, oh, more people show up. The goal is that the people in this community, the people in your college, the people at your work would know that there is a God who loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, has a miraculous plan for their life. They have a purpose and something God has called them into. How do we do that? We invite one person. Your job is not to evangelize the whole world. Your job might be to invite one person to know Jesus with you. That's the call of God in your life. Listen to me, I want you to know this, that God promises to do big things in and through those who are faithful in little things. Tonight, I'm not calling you to do something big and spectacular. I'm calling you to do something little, something faithful. And when you are faithful with little, God gives you a lot. That's my invitation for your life. You wanna live a life of consequence? You wanna have a life of meaning? You wanna have a life of generational impact? Be the type of person who says yes to the small call of God on your life. I want to invite you in that tonight. Would you just stop and pray with me now as we consider that? Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. And Father, I know that there are people in this room you're calling to do small things with great faith, small things with great love, small things with great intentionality. And you're going to use those people to change the world. And God, I just pray for anyone in this room who's just feeling that tug and yet they're just resisting it right now. God, I just pray you would overcome that barrier, overcome that resistance. God, would there just be small acts of obedience, of writing their name and number down on a piece of paper, of serving and giving and loving and inviting just small acts of obedience. God, I pray that we would be a people who are faithful with the little so that you might give us much someday. Father, I pray for this next generation. I pray for all of us. God, may you decisively empower us by the power of your spirit through the gifting of your son to reach the world for Jesus. May this valley be different. May this nation be different. May this world be different because of the faithful acts of your people. May you take those small things 
and do great things through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said.